let's segue right into some of the points of the Upanishads. That is, as compared to the principles, we have some statements of cosmic and individual and collective proportions, the way the rishis were able to render these truths of Brahman into understandable terms for all beings at all levels of understanding. You can break these points into another list of 24, but uh, basically you can break them into cosmic, collective, and individual. This is the cosmic we're looking at now. That is, those statements in the Upanishads which refer to creation and the powers that be there, gods, goddesses, forces, energies, powers. They were aware of that. They didn't deny it, even though they had an Advaitic understanding. They also gave the universe its due. So it's like saying they knew that God was formless, but also that it could take form. There was no misapprehension in their mind about that fact. So they didn't fall into the quandary of saying, this is real and that's unreal, as it were. They knew that all things were one with Brahman, uh, all things that were truly existent, that is, were one with Brahman. And so you'll find in the Upanishads that they declare their highest view to be that there has been no creation, ajatavada, we discussed that. Evolution of name and form from the unmanifested is only a phenomenon, therefore it's kind of a false reading of reality. Brahman cannot mutate into a material condition, so they don't call matter Brahman, they call matter just an expression or an overflow of the bliss of Brahman. That is, they took it in terms of three aspects, chaya, mahima, and shakti. There's such a thing as shadow, chaya, there's mahima, which means glory, and there's shakti, power. You'll find those three themes running through their teachings, their secondary teachings. These are all powers of Brahman and forces of its shakti, which project them. For probably the best look at that, you can look at the Aitareya Upanishad. Aitareya Upanishad, in chapter 1, right off the bat, starts speaking in terms of these forces of nature, shadow, glory, and shakti, and as aspects of matter. The Upanishads declare that creation is attended by suffering. That's a second point. All that I said was just the first point. That is, that the highest view is that there's been no creation. The evolution of name and form from the unmanifested is a phenomenon. That's where you get the idea of vivarta or fault superimposition, the apparent over the reality, the waves over the ocean, the clouds against the sky, uh, the shadow. You'll see that there's this appearance of things, the conventional view of things, what we see outwardly with the senses, and then there's an inner reality to everything, a deep meaning. have to learn how to pierce through those appearances and go to the root or the essence of things. That's the idea, the first idea in these points. The secondary teaching should say that due to that, Upanishads declare that there is suffering, just like Lord Buddha declared in his first noble truth, there is suffering. The same idea was there in the Upanishads. Creation is attended by suffering. It's replete with rounds of birth and death, in tandem with disease and old age, and accompanied by hunger and thirst. All those things are there. Desire and enjoyment fuel rebirth via objects, locust, and means of enjoyment. And actually, to explain that a little better, let's look at the Atiri Upanishad. Chapter 1, Section 2 for a little bit of an explanation of that. 
All these gods, the guardians of the universe thus created, fell into this mighty ocean of existence. The creator subjected virat, or aggregate body, to hunger and thirst. That is, this cosmic body became subject to hunger and thirst. The god spoke to him, Grant us a place where we can establish ourselves and eat food. The creator brought a cow's body for them. They said, This indeed is not sufficient for us. He brought in the form of a horse's body for them. They said, Indeed, this too is not sufficient for us. Then he brought them the form of a human being. Seeing that, they exclaimed in joy, Well done. Therefore, man is indeed well done. The Creator said to them, Do enter according to your places. Then, fire having turned into speech, entered the mouth. Air having turned into scent, entered the nostrils. Sun having turned into sight, entered the eyes. The deities of the four quarters having become hearing, entered the ears. The deities of the plants and trees having become hair, entered the skin. The moon having become mind, entered the heart. The god of death having become the breaths, entered into the navel. The god of waters, having become seed, entered the generative organ. Hunger and thirst said to him, Assign a place for us too. He told them, To these deities I assign you, and I make you sharers in them. Therefore, to whatsoever god an offering is made, hunger and thirst must become partners in it. So you find a kind of practical reading or rendering of creation in terms of its attendance by rebirth, and creation itself, hunger and thirst. So that's a, a good thing to contemplate as a secondary point in the Upanishads. Shvetashvatara Upanishad also gives us some clarity in that regard. In chapter 3, sloka 8, actually sloka 8 and 10, I have realized this great being who shines effulgent like the sun beyond all darkness. One passes beyond death only on realizing that. There is no other way of escape from the circle of births and deaths. That being is far beyond this world, is formless and free from misery. They too know this and become immortal, but all others have indeed to suffer many births and suffer in misery alone. So it brings back to us the point of the Vedanta that happiness and sorrow are both ways of suffering. That is, you suffer happiness of an ephemeral type or of a limited type, then when your enjoyment goes away, it brings with it a sense of loss or fear or other things even worse, like shame or shadow, as it were, some sort of shadow in the mind. The Rishi Shvetashvatara tells us here about this great being who removes that problem, but reminds us also that those who fixate with ephemeral creation and, and forget the immortal one suffer misery here in this place which is the misery of suffering as well as of enjoyment. Let's look at the same Upanishad, chapter 6, sloka 16 and 20, and see what more light is shed on the matter for us. That one is the creator of everything as well as the knower of everything. It is his own source. It is all-knowing. It is the destroyer of time. Only when men shall roll up the sky like a skin will there be an end of misery for them without realizing God. <laughs> Only when men will roll up the sky like a skin then will there be an end of misery, the Upanishad declares. 
you have to uh, first know that which is beyond the ethers. Then you can transcend the ethers if you want to put it in more direct terms. Let's look again into the Kato Upanishad, chapter 1, sloka 6. So we're talking about the creation being attended by suffering. Remembering how the ancients behaved, mark also how others do not. Like corn, the mortal being ripens and falls, and like corn is born again. So it uh, almost sounds biblical uh, in the sense that uh, they point out this analogy, it's something growing in the earth. If you assign yourself, your consciousness to nature, then you're born again in nature, as Ram Prasad would sing in one of his songs. But one should instead mark how the ancients behaved, which is exactly what we're doing here in these classes. We're filling our minds and our consciousness with thoughts about uh, realizations had many thousand years ago by illumined beings, which have, through the grace of Divine Mother, come down to us in this pure form. We're so fortunate to hear these things. Staying in the Kato Upanishad, take chapter 3, sloka 7. Because no one better than Yama, the Lord of Death, who appears throughout this Upanishad, to instruct us on the ills of relativity. In chapter 3, sloka 7, we read, That one who is devoid of proper understanding, thoughtless and always impure, never attains the goal and gets into the round of births and deaths again and again. But that one who is intelligent, pure, and with the mind controlled, verily reaches that goal whence none is born again. So, can't be much clearer than that. So in this way we see that the wisdom in the Upanishads and that these rishis knew that karma and reincarnation were relative truths. There was the idea of everything coming again and again, cyclic, samsara as it were. But very important to, to study of Upanishadic wisdom or Vedic lore is that there is a transcendent reality and there's also a way to render this world Brahman even with all its limitations and inhibitions, all its problems, there is a way to live in it in a noble way and therefore see it all as Brahman. So again, back to the Jivan Mukti idea, whether I have a body or whether I'm in a disembodied state doesn't matter at all to Brahman or the Atman, which is neither bodied nor disembodied. It's beyond the concept of embodiment or disembodiment, therefore it's beyond birth and death or reincarnation. So that's why we classify these as qualified teachings or secondary teachings, because they apply to us in the relative world. And we find ourselves here embodied in this uh, physical universe. They become very important to us, maybe as important as these non-dualistic statements, which also must be ingested and contemplated. Enough of the suffering that attends creation right now. Let's go to a third point in the in the cosmic section of these Upanishads. That is, they teach that creation is a product of the cosmic mind. And here we have Shristi Rahasya that I've mentioned a lot. Or in the beginning was the word, the idea that everything is a vibration. The demi-urge, sometimes spoken of in Greek mythology or philosophy, also called Brahma, Hiranyagarbha, Mahat, even Ishvara. The knowledge of it is always passed down from the greatest seers to others. So it's an important thing. 
this tracing of the whole universe and all its apparent things back to the initial cause. Because then only you can see that there's something beyond the initial cause. You can also know what caused this world and universe. That's paramount or tatamount, just saying you must know the nature of the universe, the world you live in, you must know your Atman, and you should know Brahman. Those three things you must know. So very important to know this seat of all creation. Let's look at the Mundakopanishad, which is always clear on such matters, and look at chapter 1, sloka 1 and 2, right off the top, to find reference to this. Brahma, the creator and protector of this universe, arose first before all the gods. To the eldest son, Atharvan, he imparted the science of the spirit, the basis of all sciences. Brahma is, the, is distinguished, of course, between Brahman. The first is the demiurge of Indian cosmology, the creator of the Hindu trinity, and should be distinguished from Brahman, the impersonal absolute, is the note here. Shasoka too says, What Brahma, the creator, imparted to Atharvan, even that science of the spirit, Atharvan imparted to Angaras in olden days, and Angaras passed it on to Bharadvaja, Satyavaha, and he in turn to Angaras. Thus the science descended from the greatest sages to the lesser ones. On down to Saunaka, who was a famous householder who approached Angaras and got it. So Mundaka Upanishad starts off with a Guru Parampara idea, the uh, passing of the knowledge from one to another, from guru to disciple, so that we keep track of this creation. See? In other words, keep track, but doesn't mean analyze it to a hilt and get all lost in it, which sometimes people have a tendency to do, but more that we remember that it had an inception, and more importantly, that beyond any idea of inception is Brahman, the uncreate. That's why Ajata form one of the very earliest principles of our Upanishadic study, that Brahman is uncreate. Very important to keep that in mind. Let's look at Svetashvatara Upanishad for another reference to this idea that creation is a product of a cosmic mind or a demiurge. Chapter 5, Sloka 2. He alone presides over nature in all aspects and controls every form and every cause of production. He witnesses the birth of the firstborn seer of golden color and nourishes him with wisdom. Firstborn seer of golden color is the cosmic egg, Hiranyagarbha. That is the universe itself. The universe not only physically but astrally and causally. Anything create. Uh, from the highest god, Indra, on down to an ant, as I said, from the most subtle body down to the gross body, from the most refined vibration of the highest thoughts of Prajapati, the, the saint and sage, but the teacher of all others, down to the most densely vibrating element of earth. That's all in the realm of creation. Very nice that they made a distinction between that and what is absolute, so that we would know. Because here, the sloka refers to that which presides over everything in creation, but which is not of creation itself, stands back, is completely other, is detached, is not a material structure, and so forth. 
to finish up, let's take one more citing from the Kato Upanishad about creation as product of cosmic mind. Chapter 4, Sloka 7. Aditi, the soul of the gods, who manifested in the form of prana and was created with the elements, who dwells having entered the heart, he knows her, knows Brahman indeed. Verily, this is that. Like the fetus well preserved by the pregnant mother, this omniscient Agni lodged in fire sticks is worshipped day after day by the awakened ones and sacrificial offerers. This is verily that. That from which the sun rises and to which it merges again, in that are all the gods fixed and none can verily transcend it. And this is verily that. So, find an idea that those gods, Aditi and Surya and Agni, are, of course, principles of creation, light or fire, or however they appear, whether they're subtle light of spiritual consciousness that illumines the intellect, or whether the gross light of the sun in the physical universe, or whether a light of a candle lit by a man in a dark room. These are all a part of the elements or part of creation, and there is that which stands beyond as witness, as Sakshi, as Kutashta as Antaryami, and so forth. So, Shristi-stiti-laya, there is creation, preservation, and destruction. That's the creative process. Those are the three movements of creation presided over by this cosmic mind. You yourself, your own mind, is a portion of that cosmic mind. You have the same traits and characteristics and properties of that cosmic mind. But what happens when you go beyond mind in meditation? Mind becomes extinct or blown out. Nirvana, it's called in Buddhism. Then you realize yourself to be something other than mind. Pure mind is, is God or Buddha mind. Buddha nature, pure Buddha nature. So remember, there is that thing called creation and there is the uncreated self. You can separate them by terms of understanding. First, you discriminate that way. You separate out all that changes. Neti neti, or vivika, discrimination. If you take away everything that changes, what you're left with at the very end of that process of self-inquiry is Brahman itself. You'll find it's the one changeless thing. And that's what the Samkhya scientists, the ancient rishis, did. They noted everything in the universe that was changing, mutable, and they renounced it. They took it away. And... They rose above the first creative urge, this cosmic mind, and they beheld Brahman there, shining. They called Brahman self-effulgent, svayam jyoti, like a sun, always shining. But the intellect and mind was like the moon, borrowing light from it. See, the moon thinks it shines, but it doesn't shine. In the same way, the ego thinks it's all-powerful, and the mind thinks it's great, but it only borrows the light of greatness from the sun of the Atman. So that must be perceived. Number five is Rahim Prana Brahma. That is, Rahim means food, Prana means energy. So matter and energy is what they were speaking of here in their language of the times. The Upanishads teach that matter and energy both proceed from Brahman. Let's look at Katha Upanishad again for an example of that in chapter 5, sloka 5. It is heard, No mortal ever lives by life force or by different pranas, but they live by something different, 
on whom all these depend. Sounds a lot like man does not live on bread alone. Energy that you get from food that animates the body and keeps the life force flowing, that's not actually what you live on. You can live without food for several weeks if you want. There's something else animating you. And even when you're well-fed, you can be sluggish, sleepy, so forth. But it's very difficult to extinguish a life that's so tenacious. And those who fast and who contemplate and who have patience and who go deep, they realize something else is supporting everything, all lives. That life and death come and go, but this one immortal verity exists at all times. Let's look at the Prajna Upanishad for the first time for one more illustration of this idea that matter and energy both proceed from Brahman. In chapter 1, sloka 4, Pipalada, the great rishi of this Upanishad, states, The creator, desirous of progeny, performed austerity in the form of meditation. Having performed austerity, he created the pair. The pair, P-A-I-R, means matter and energy thinking that they together would manifoldly bring forth creatures for him. So, standing back and creating matter and energy that is proceeding from Brahman, then everything else sprung up. Krishna says that in the Gita. People superimpose over me the idea that I am the agent, that I am the doer. But I don't do anything. I'm completely detached. Nature does everything for me. So, that's the nature of Brahman, actionless and not subject to any kind of movement so forth. Yet by the very presence of that, other things move. Just like by the very presence of air, which we can't see right now. We're breathing and living. Or there's a nice funny story actually that one teacher tells. He says, uh, the fish all got together one day at the bottom of the ocean and they tried to decide if water existed or not. You see the humor in it because it's invisible, as it were, yet it's the very substance of their existence, but they're arguing about whether it exists or not. It's that futile. The creation alone is proof of Brahman, is proof of God. If there's a creation, there has to be a creator. But here the rishis went deeper beyond creation, and they found out, yes, there's a creation, yes, there's a creator, cosmic mind, but there's something uncreate which causes the creation to be something unseen which causes all beings to see and perceive, something unthinkable that causes all minds to think. So if thine eye becomes single, then you will see that oneness existing in and throughout everything, and you'll immediately be captivated by that, and the world will go away. You won't perceive the world anymore. You'll only perceive Brahman. That's the secret of Advaita Vedanta and how Christ lived, how Buddha lived, how Muhammad lived, how Ramakrishna lived in Advaita, in oneness. They only saw God. So we're beginning to see how it can become possible to do that and how desirable it really is. Let's go to number six. The Upanishads reveal the gods. That is, prana, ether, elements, mind, all of these are little gods. These are what we call gods and goddesses, really. So here we have Atma Prana. means Prana proceeds from the Atman. And Prana is the chief of all gods. That is, life force. 
Because if life force leaves you, everything else will stop functioning. No mind is possible without life force. The body's circulation isn't possible without life force. Nature and its movement isn't possible without life force. So prana is the chief of all gods, stated in the Upanishad. But it proceeds from Atman, which is uncreate again, which is not a thing that moves or which thinks or acts. The same Upanishad gives us a little clue in chapter 2, sloka 2 through 13. The ether is God, the air, the fire, the water, the earth, speech, mind, eye, and ear, those are all little gods. These having manifested their power, they vaunt it, and they say to each of us holding this body, we support everything. But the chief god, Prana, declared one day, do not be deluded, I alone dividing myself into five parts, hold this body and support it. But the others were not disposed to believe his words. Then from indignation, he appeared to go out upwards from the body, and thereupon, as he was about to go out, all others seemed to go out, and when he was being established, all others were also established, just as bees go out when their queen goes out and settle down when she settles down. So did the speech, mind, eye, ear, and so forth have to follow prana. Then they became satisfied and they praised the prana as the chief god. So again, talking about points of the Upanishad in order to illustrate how all things come from Brahman, we have this idea of prana or life force being the all-pervasive material constituency of the universe. Uh, That's how God knows what's happening. We said God is omniscient. How does God know everything that's happening in the universe? Through the prana just like a spider knows everything that's happening around by contact with its web. All those strands are like pranas. A prana pervades the physical world. A prana pervades the subtle worlds, the astral worlds, the causal worlds. Prana pervades the mind, is thought. And prana goes right on up to the cosmic mind. That's how cosmic mind projected everything in the first place. And that all, of course, came from Brahman or Atman. So creation... And what's beyond creation can be explained nicely and was explained very adequately in terms of all these understandings by the ancient rishis. As spokes in the nave of the wheel, all are fixed in prana. Verily, Prajapati, the creator, though wandering in the womb and born again, to thee, O prana, thou who dwellest in the body with the senses, these creatures carry their offerings to and fro. Thou art the best carrier for God's and the first offering to all of the mains. Thou art true. In the same Upanishad, look at chapter 3, sloka 3, about how, if there's any doubt about prana and how it comes from Atman, we'll find how prana is born of Atman. It's stated there, Of the Atman is born this prana, like the shadow on a man is spread out on it. It comes into the body by the act of the mind. As an emperor orders his officials, saying, Do you reside in and rule these villages and those villages? So does the chief prana engage all the other pranas differently in their various functions. So it's sort of like a president in his cabinet passing on responsibilities. There's this overlord, as it were, or the oversoul in this case. And then there's all these powers in creation which carry on their various functions due to this presence of this one omniscient being. So number five then and number six are all about food or matter and energy and how they proceed from Brahman.
Let's go to number seven. Sarvam prane ejati. That means the Upanishads reveal the science of energy. Let's look at the Shvetashvatara Upanishad and look at um, chapter 6, sloka 2 and read, It should be known that energy assumes various forms such as earth, water, light, air, and ether at the command of that one who is the master and the maker of time, who is omniscient, who is pure consciousness itself and by whom all this is ever enveloped. So that's a very nice sloka indicating how the science of energy is there. And again, subservient to that uh, maker of time, the omniscient. For further explanation, look at the Kato Upanishad, chapter 5, sloka 3. That Brahman sends the prana upward and throws the apana downward. All the gods worship that adorable one seated in the middle. So, that is the foundation and the support of everything. In fact, in another Upanishad, I remember a sloka that all live in fear of that. The planets rotate on their axes and, and so forth in their rotation due to fear of that all-powerful one. And all functions uh, go on according to the presence of that illimitable one. One more excerpt, chapter 6, sloka 2. The prana being present, the whole universe comes out of Atman and vibrates within it. It is a great terror, like the raised thunderbolt. Those who know this become immortal. So, uh, Sri Ramakrishna used to say, know the nature of the world, know yourself, and know Brahman. Those are the three things you need to know. The nature of the world is impermanent, changing. So, as we say, you wouldn't want to build your house on sand. The nature of the self is immortal, birthless, deathless, and the nature of Brahman, the relationship between the two, is that they're one and the same. This immortal self seated in the heart is the same as that all-pervasive self. It's a spiritual verity. They describe it like sparks coming off a fire. All these seemingly individual selves are made of the same element, that pure conscious awareness. That brings us up to number eight, which is starting the individual and collective category. Again, sit up, breathe, focus. It's a great agony to slump. It's, it's, most, it's most wonderful to sit just like this. If you slump, then you get tired and your mind goes to sleep. But if you sit like this, the energy can flow. And you can sit like this for hours happy like a child. We're on point number eight. The syllable OM is the tool for meditation and the door to freedom. The syllable OM is the tool for meditation and the door to freedom. In the Mudaka Upanishad, chapter 2, section 2, sloka 4, 224, we can read about that syllable OM wherein it states, Om, the mystic syllable, is the bow. The self within is the arrow. And Brahman, the absolute, is the target. One should hit the mark with an undistracted mind and, like the arrow, become one with the target. 
So, meditation on Om. Om causes the mind to forget every other thought, every other vibration. A-U-M, creation, preservation, and destruction. A-U-M, father, mother, and guru. A-U-M, waking state, dreaming state, deep sleep. A-U-M, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. So many powerful teachings in that one syllable. It's the eternal sound, Om. It's the same as Amin or Shalom or Allah. That's the same sounds. They have in them the power to create, the power to preserve, and the power to destroy. And that's the whole secret. When cosmic mind wants to project a world, it'll use the beaches. Everything is vibration first, right? Science even knows that. Stocks and stones are vibrating real slow. Plants are vibrating a little faster. Animals' minds are vibrating a little faster. Human minds faster than that. You can measure the alpha and beta waves of the mind, and they're so fast you can hardly register them. Then the meters stop. Is there anything beyond? Yes, you have angelic worlds, causal worlds, where saints and sages keep their subtle bodies. And beyond that, this cosmic mind and Atman ever free and never bound. So, all for the power of Om. Shama Krishna said, I had to come down a long way from Om before I saw the world. And also, above Om is Brahman, because different than the Word is the one who speaks the Word. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. You can't separate Shakti from Brahman, its power to create from the Creator itself or from that which is beyond creation. They're one and the same thing. So when Christ spoke out words such as that, it was the tip of the iceberg. Because when he visited in his wandering years, Tibet and India, he heard all those truths of the Tantra that had been established for 10,000 years prior to his birth, that everything was vibration. And that's the secret of creation, Shristirahasya, that everything is vibration. Science is measuring the external vibrations, but the metaphysical scientists, the Samkhya scientists, the meditators, they begin to measure, as it were, gauge the inner vibrations, and they go very deep. In fact, that is the way to prove evolution to be a myth. It's all an outward movement. But if you involute back to your source, you'll find that which is beyond the Big Bang or any other theory of creativity resting there, absolute pristine and pure in its own bliss, in its own truth, in its own non-dual essence. Let's look at Kato Upanishad about how it says in terms of Om. In chapter 2, sloka 15 through 17, we find this. The goal which all the scriptures proclaim, which all penances declare, and desiring which they lead the life of continence, I tell it to you in brief. It is Om. This syllable is Brahman. This syllable is also the highest. It means near Guna Brahman, higher than the creation. Having known this syllable Om, whatever one desires, one gets that. This support is the best. This support is the supreme. Knowing this support, one is worshipped in the world of Brahman. Let's look for the first time at the Taittiriya Upanishad and see what it says about Om. 
Chapter 1, Lesson 8, Sloka 1. Chapter 1, Lesson 8, Sloka 1. Therein we read, One should contemplate. <laughs> Colon. One should contemplate this. Om is Brahman. All this universe, perceived and imagined, is Om. It is universally known that Om is the term of compliance. The priests officiating at the sacrifice direct the assistant with the words, Make it known to devas that the oblation is ready and be offered. Starting with Om, chanting, the priests sing. Uttering Om, Som, in the beginning, the priests recite the invocations. The Advaryu addresses his response with a syllable Om. Brahma sets the sacrifice in motion, uttering Om. The sacrifice authorizes the priest to offer the oblation of fire, uttering Om. The Brahmana proceeding to recite the Veda, in, intending, Let me obtain the knowledge of the Vedas, starts with Om. Surely he attains Brahman. So we start Om Sahana Bhavatu, Om Asatu Masat Gamoya. See, Om Badram Karne Bihi Srinayamadeva. Even when we chant the scriptures, we start with that sacred word. And you attain Brahman, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. You attain peace of Brahman through that word Om. So that, of course, is a subject for a dozen classes, and you would not exhaust it. Let's go on. Brahman is revealed via meditation. Dhyan Brahma. That is, Jan means meditation. So the Upanishads state this, that Brahman is revealed via meditation. Look at the Shvetashvatara Upanishad, chapter 1, sloka 3, and you'll find there, written, Practicing the method of meditation, they realize that being who is the god of religion, the self of philosophy, and the energy of science. That's very well put. I'll repeat that. Practicing the method of meditation, they realize that being who is the god of religion, the self of philosophy, and the energy of science, who exists as the self-luminous power in everyone, who is the source of the intellect, emotions, and will, who is one without a second, who presides over all the causes enumerated above, beginning with time and ending with the individual soul and who had been incomprehensible because of the limitations of their own intellect. So finally they pierced through the limitations of their own intellect and they beheld that one who was the self of philosophy, the energy of science, and the god of religion. I have many, many citations of meditation here, but I'm just taking a few. Let's look at the Amrita Bindu Upanishad because it's called one of the minor Upanishads but they're certainly not minor in their teaching scope. It's just that they weren't commented on by Shankara, so they don't get as much attention. They're major in the way they teach. In Chapter 1, Sloka 5 of the Amrita Bindu Upanishad, we read this about meditation. The mind should be controlled to that extent in which it gets merged in the heart. This is called realization by way of meditation. All else is argumentation and verbiage. So control that mind. Merge it in the heart. You'll get jnana and dhyana. 
Those are the actual words used that I interpreted for you. Jnana is realization or knowledge that leads to realization. Dhyana is meditation. And we've had many, many teachings on that. Remember the tapes that we put out of the last discourse have a lot about meditation and mantra that will help you. Much more, of course, could be said about meditation and om too, but let's go on to number 10. Guru. Guru moksha, actually. That is, to attain liberation, take a teacher. You take a doctor when you're sick. You take a lawyer when you have a court case. You should take a guru when you want to know about spiritual life. In the Mundaka Upanishad, chapter 1, section 2, sloka 12 and 13, we read this about the preceptor. Having scrutinized all the worlds gained by deeds, a man of spiritual inclination should become indifferent to them. For deeds which are originated cannot win the Supreme, who is unoriginated. Therefore, to know that, with a capital T, let him become a pupil under a preceptor who is both learned in the scripture and established in the spirit. To such a seeker, whose mind is tranquil and senses controlled, and who approaches him in proper form, let the wise teacher impart the science of Brahman in its very essence, the science by which one knows the true imperishable being called Brahman. Those are very pregnant slokas. They're very powerful because they have in them not only the statement of truth about Brahman, that it exists, but the way in which to approach Brahman and the obstacle which gets in the way, that is, deeds, work. Only scripture-ordained work should be done, not non-scripture-ordained work. That is, nothing with selfish motive should be done by you. You should always do it dharmically in service of God and mankind. Never seek wealth and family and so forth for self-gratification. So that statement is given here in those terms. Scrutinize the worlds gained by human beings through deeds and then become indifferent to them. That is, gain your detachment. If you gain your detachment and renounce the world, then you're free. At that moment, you're free. You've put it to rest, all problems. Then you can serve in the world in the right spirit. See, so renunciation isn't just for monks, it's for householders too. Because the world is not your ultimate resting place. You're just taking a sojourn here. Your family, your friends, your children do not belong to you. Even Christ said that. They're souls under your care for only a small amount of time. In fact, it's not for the sake of the child that the child's love, but the sake of the Atman inside. If the Atman were not there, the child would be undesirable. So always see that one existence in all things and make no excuses or exceptions about it, and then you'll live in peace and bliss. Let's take Kato Upanishad's idea of guru in chapter 2, sloka 7 through 9. Well, here I can do this one by memory. Shavanayapi bahu bir yo na labhyaha shrinvato pi bahavo yam na vidyuhu ascharyo gyata kushilo shalabda ascharyo vakta kushilo nushishtaha. Even to hear of it is not available to many. Many others, even having heard of it, cannot comprehend it. Wonderful is its teacher, equally clever is its pupil, but fortunate and blessed indeed is he who comprehends it when taught by an able preceptor. 
That it, of course, is the Atman, realization of the Atman. Further, this Atman can never be well comprehended if taught by an inferior person. Even though often pondered, unless it is taught by another who is wise and realized, there is no other way to it. It is subtler than the subtlest, and it is unarguable. This knowledge which thou hast obtained about Atman is not attained by mere argumentation. It becomes easy of comprehension, though, O dearest one, when taught by another. Thou art of true resolve, indeed. May we get inquirers like thee. So Yama is talking about Nachiketas, this young man who's come. Yama is the lord of death. And Nachiketas wants to know what's beyond death. So what better place to go than death itself and ask death what's beyond you? It's a beautiful Upanishad, uh, if maybe even a, a perfect one to start with, because it's got a storyline. And Nachiketas is that able student which Yama is lauding. So may we get more inquirers like you. So those who have worth, who have inner substance, they come here, Shama Krishna said. That is, they come to the heart or they come to the great teachers, and then they learn the science of Brahman, and they become free. To them belong peace and to none else. And Sri Ramakrishna used to say, sweetmeats are of different kinds and different costs. The cheap ones are filled with mere lentil paste. The more expensive ones, condensed milk. The most expensive ones are filled with peas and cauliflower and good things. So he was talking about human beings and their ability to comprehend Brahman. Some, as this Upanishad just stated, will never even hear of it. They won't know the truth of their being. Others, though they hear of it, will fail to comprehend it. But the blessed and fortunate ones, those who are full of substance and who are sincere and earnest, they come quickly to that knowledge. Then it doesn't matter whether you embody or stay disembodied. You're ever ensconced in your true essence. Let's take one more. Stretch our break and just do one more because much could be said, of course, about Guru. But let's go on to Atmagyan. Only illumined beings are true teachers. And they're the true teachers of men who want prosperity dharmically. That is, if you want to proceed to fulfill yourself in life, you must do it dharmically. And to do it dharmically, you must have an exemplar. So let's see what... Mundaka Upanishad says about that, only illumined beings are the true teachers of mankind. In chapter 3, section 1, sloka 10, 3.1.10, we read this about illumined teachers. Whatever sphere the man of purified nature desires, whatever object he fixes his heart upon, he obtains those worlds and those objects Therefore, that one who is desirous of prosperity should pay honor to the man of self-realization. In the Bhagavad Gita, Sri Krishna says, there are four kinds of seekers who seek me. One, the suffering, who wants freedom from suffering. Two, those who seek wealth. That means those who seek wealth dharmically, not adharmically. The wisdom knowers are third, those who seek wisdom. And the fourth are those who love me, first and foremost. Those are the four gradations of seeker. That's those who are attracted to God. There are, of course, many, many others who 
never even think to search for something real. Taking one more example from this, we go to the Prasnopanishad, chapter 1, sloka 9 and 10, and we find this written there. The year is verily Prajapati, and his paths are two, the southern and northern. Those who perform Vedic sacrifice, charitable works, thinking them as works of supreme value, they attain the lower worlds and return there again. But those rishis who desire offspring go by the southern path. Matter, verily, is the path of all the lower worlds. But those who have sought the Atman by austerity, by abstinence, by faith and knowledge, attain to the northern path. This is the source of all energy. This is the immortal, free from fear. This is the supreme resort. From there they do not return, for it is the end. There is the following verse on it. Some sages say that he is the father with five feet and twelve forms, giving range from the upper half of the heaven. Others again say that the seer is placed on a chariot of seven wheels and six spokes. The month is verily the teacher. The dark fortnight is matter. The bright fortnight is, is energy. Therefore, some rishis perform their sacrifice in the bright fortnight. Others perform them in the other half. And this, of course, goes on and on. If you wanted to read it to its consummation, you'd have to read the first section of the Prasna Upanishad. And to end, let's look at chapter 3, section 2, sloka 1, 2, and 3 of the Mundaka Upanishad. The person of self-realization knows the supreme Brahman on whom this world is based and who shines radiantly. And those wise ones who are devoted to such a teacher without any worldly desire go beyond all chances of rebirth. Whoever longs for objects of desire, brooding over them, they are born here and there for the satisfaction of those desires. But in the case of a sage whose longings have found consummation in the Atman and whose soul has been perfected, desires vanish away even here in this life. For the self is not attained through discourses, nor through intellectuality, nor through much learning. It is gained only by that one who longs for it with the whole heart. For to such a one the self reveals its own nature. So we will take our break here at number 11, Atma Gyan, and we'll start on number 12 after the break.